Uh, my name is Matthew Eichard, and uh, I, I am excited uh, to look at God's Word with you this morning. I'd encourage you to take your Bibles or your phones or however you access the Word of God and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53 today. Isaiah 53. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our series in this middle portion of Isaiah, a series that we've titled really after a direct declaration early in these chapters uh, where it tells us that we are to behold our God, where the prophet encourages under inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to really set our eyes, to give our attention over to the character, the majesty, the real awesomeness of God Almighty, and to the beauty and wonder of the promised work that he is going to accomplish for the good of his people. We've been walking through this series since January, seeing time and time again that God promises a salvation to a rebellious, disobedient people who have been taken far from home in the discipline of the Lord, a people who will be taken to Babylon, a people who will suffer in slavery, a people who will know distance and separation. But here in Isaiah 53, we are going to see in many ways the very heart of the good news, the very best news that God is committed through His servant to making everything right again. I'm actually going to begin reading this morning in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13, so if you'll back up just a few verses with me. And then I'll read the entirety of chapter 53, but we're really going to focus our attention Uh, just on the last few verses of the 53rd chapter. Hear now as I read for us God's very word given for your good and for mine. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows." Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many." He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let us pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word, and as we consider your servant, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray this morning, we pray that by your Spirit we would see Jesus Christ high and lifted up, but may we also see him humbled, one who is willing to take our punishment on the cross, one who gave up his very life so that we might know righteousness and peace so that we might come home. God, by your word and by your spirit this morning, inform our minds, transform our hearts, bring conviction and comfort and encouragement and change, and bring glory to your everlasting name. All this we pray in and through Jesus. Amen. This morning as we consider this passage and as we consider the many things that it has to say about the servant of the Lord and about the everlasting joy that is ours because of the servant's work, as we consider all that it says about sin and judgment and wrath and all that it says about forgiveness and life and hope, I want us to begin together this morning by thinking about the definition of of biblical love. As you consider the nature of love, particularly as it is explained to us, shown to us in the very Word of God, how would you define it? What does it look like? What does it call an individual to? As I've studied my way through Scripture, and considered passage after passage, particularly 1 Corinthians 13, and as you look carefully at the, the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to offer what I hope can be a helpful definition of biblical love for us this morning. It's an unconditional commitment to promoting the greatest good of another at any and all costs to myself. Let me give that to you again. 
Biblical love is an unconditional commitment to promoting the greatest good of another at any and all costs to myself. As we really look at the servant, as we consider his sacrifice here in Isaiah 53, as we think again, or maybe for the first time, about the life and ministry and work and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want us to keep that definition of love in mind. I want us to consider how Jesus was willing, not because of our performance, not because of our inherent worth, but because of his unconditional commitment, how was he was willing to sacrifice, to give for our greatest good. This morning our outline is really rather simple. Here in Isaiah 53, we are going to talk about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to continue these themes of Easter as we think about the glory, the power, the wonder of an empty tomb. We also must start and begin by recognizing that Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, did in fact die for his people and for their sin. Isaiah 53 is perhaps the most familiar passage in all of Isaiah's book, and rightly so. It is densely packed. It is gospel-rich, and it showcases multiple times the necessity and reality of the salvation that is ours in Christ. Let me say, though, right off the bat, we are not going to be will- are able to, to deal with this exhaustively, to really cover everything that is said. Also, I'll remind us that in this passage of Isaiah, we've actually met the servant of the Lord many times. The servant of the Lord is typically described as one who will be the Lord's champion, the one who will win the victory, the one who will be the banner bearer, who will take a people who have been disobedient, rebellious, a people who have been taken into exile, and he will lead them home. He will deal with their problems. Here in Isaiah 53, we're in the fourth and final servant song. But here, the champion of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, the warrior on behalf of God's people, he accomplishes, he brings, he secures salvation, how? Through suffering. Through sacrifice. And through death. So let's first give our attention to the death of the servant or the death of Jesus. First, consider with me the reality of the servant's death. Now for us as New Testament believers, we might think, yes, we we know that Jesus died on the cross. Never, ever take that knowledge for granted. But sitting in the middle of Isaiah's prophecy, it, it really should come to us as a great surprise that the servant of the Lord dies. That, that the king, the warrior, the promised one, gives up his life? We see the reality of this death really throughout the passage, but I want to direct you to just a few phrases. In verse 7, it says that the servant will be taken as a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 8, it explicitly says that the servant was cut off from the land of the living. In verse 9, we learn that he will make his grave with the wicked and will be with a rich man in his death. 
a clear allusion to the fact that Jesus Christ, when he was suffering and dying on the cross, was he not surrounded by thieves and robbers? And in his death, did he not borrow, that's an important word I'll come back to later, borrow, borrow the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea? Finally, in verse 12, it's extremely explicit. There in the middle of the verse, it says that the servant has poured out his soul unto death. We do well then to ask the question, why? Recognizing that that it's an inescapable reality that the servant of the Lord, that Jesus Christ, that the Messiah, the appointed one, would die. Why? Secondly, underneath this point, we see the purpose of his death. In verse 9, we learn that it is not a death that comes to the servant because of anything that he has done. It says in verse 9, there is no violence in this servant. There was no deceit in his mouth. There's no sin, disobedience, or rebellion in the life of the servant. Why then would he experience such a painful, agonizing, grotesque, kind of death. I think verse 10 is really the key for us as we consider this passage and all that it means. In addition to all of the things that have been said in verses 7 through 9, we learn something very important in verse 10. Who is it who is ultimately pouring out wrath upon the servant? Who is it that is bringing about the death of the servant? It says that it was the will of who? Help me out, seriously. It is the will of the Lord, of the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, eternal God. It is the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. But again, we we have to ask why. The the servant suffers and dies, but but the servant is perfect. The servant has been obedient. The servant has lived a life of righteousness. The servant is appointed to the task of carrying out salvation. Why then would the Lord pour out his wrath upon the servant? Well, those of us who are familiar with the gospel message, those of us who are familiar with with the work of Jesus Christ, perhaps we know, but let us remember together and rejoice together in what the gospel actually means. Look at verse 8. Why did the Lord crush him? Why did the Lord put this servant, Jesus Christ, to grief? He was stricken for the transgression of his people. Verse 10, his soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, he, the servant, will bear our iniquities. Verse 12, again, makes it crystal clear for us. He bore the sin of many. So why is the servant given over to death? Why does the servant receive a crushing blow from the Lord God Almighty? Jesus Christ is dying for the sins of his people. 
This is a clear explanation in Isaiah 53 of something theologians refer to as the vicarious or substitutionary atonement. It very clearly means that although we deserve the wrath of God, we deserve the punishment of God, we deserve everything that God would have to give us as a righteous, holy creator and sustainer, Jesus Christ has taken all of it in our place. The servant is going to bring his people home, home to God, and home to that greater promised land. How? He's going to do it by dealing with the real problem. It would have been easy, would it not, for the Israelites who were preparing in Isaiah's day to endure exile and separation, to be taken far from familiarity and far from one another, to think, to conclude that the real problem is geopolitical. The real problem is these Assyrians and then these Babylonians and then these Persians who keep messing up the good life that we're trying to enjoy in the promised land. But notice, as God moves through the servant, through Jesus to make things right, he's not talking about the Babylonians anymore. Because they are not the real problem. Who is the real problem? Me and you. Our hearts. It is not our circumstances that God ultimately must address. It is our sin. And that is what he is committed to here in Isaiah 53 throughout all of Scripture. That issue is what he addresses in Jesus Christ. Jesus dies for our sin, but it gets even better. Because we also learn in this chapter that Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, he gives us the fullness of the righteousness that he has actually secured through his life. Where do I see that? Look at verse 11. It says that the righteous one will make many to be accounted as righteous. So it's more than just our sin being dealt with by Jesus. It is also, by grace, through faith, the righteousness of Christ that is everlastingly placed upon us. Wonder upon wonders. It's this reality that Paul reflects on in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, God took him who knew no sin and made him sin for us. Why? So that we might be counted the righteousness, the righteousness, the righteousness of of God. To help illustrate this this morning, I, I want us to think a little bit. I, I want us to think creatively together. I realize it's a little out of the ordinary for us, but just stay with me. We're going to make it, I promise. And remember, I'm the youth pastor, so I have full freedom to do the silly things. It's a joke. As you consider your life, as you think about your sin, I want you to think about the time you lied to your mom when you were five, or the time you went that place on the internet that you knew you shouldn't go, or that time you really, really coveted your neighbor's beautiful grass and his amazing car. Name any sin, doesn't matter, guess what? That sin deserves the wrath of God. You think about wrath of God like this, we deserve it. It's ours. But how much of it? All of it. Forever. 
Every single time you and I commit a sin, we are storing up for ourselves the wrath of God. So we have a big problem. Because God, as a perfect, righteous, holy God, He must judge our sin. Right? Right. Now, to help me think about this, I have a couple of friends who are going to come up here with me. I need Luke Dawkins and Elliot Gray to come to the front. Both of these guys are seniors, going to be graduating in the very near future. In this illustration, Elliot is going to represent us. And when I mean us, I mean every single one of us. No matter what your flavor of sin, it is captured in the person this morning of Elliot Gray. Luke represents the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who has lived a perfect life, who has actually obtained the favor and welcome and blessing of God because of his moral perfection. In Isaiah 53, it is obvious that God's wrath belongs where? Right here. How much of it? all of it. For how long? Forever. You and I, before a holy God, we have no hope. And yet, what has God committed himself to? Sending us a servant, the Lord Jesus. Who does what? Who takes our sin upon himself who gives his perfection, his righteousness to us. And we think, wonder of wonders, praise the Lord, hallelujah, but we still have an issue. God's wrath must be satisfied. And so what does Jesus actually take upon himself? All of it! All of it! What's left in the bucket? The answer is nothing. As Jesus Christ gave up his life on the cross, there is a reason he said it is finished. It's because it was finished. The punishment for all of God's people for all of time had been taken. Thank you, gentlemen. You can have a seat. You can take those with you. Consider those a gift. Also, Brother Jack, I know those balls are exciting. We're just going to leave those be, all right? (laughs) in that illustration I hope we begin to understand that Jesus did not simply make salvation a possibility for those who might sort of kind of want to one day associate themselves with him the servant of the Lord actually fully took all of the wrath all of it forever Where does that leave us if by God's grace we have been drawn by the Spirit of God to faith in Jesus Christ? I hope it leaves us in at least two places. First, I hope it leaves us in a place of humility. In fact, it must. Because like Eliot, we are sinful, disobedient people. We actually deserve the wrath of God and we can do nothing about it. We can't work it off. We can't say enough, think enough, do enough to make it any different. 
but it should also leave us in a place of incredible gratitude. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. That's the death of Jesus. What about the resurrection of Jesus? You might think, well, Matthew, hold on, we're in the Old Testament. You're right, we are. But did you notice the hard shift in language that actually happens in the second half of verse 10? Look at it again with me. As soon as God reveals that it is actually His will, His righteousness, His holiness that demands the satisfaction of His wrath, what does He say? It says that the servant makes an offering for guilt, but then he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. How is this possible? Didn't the servant die? Yes. And guess what? He did not stay dead. The Lord took the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as a fully satisfactory sacrifice. And acknowledging that the work was completed and that death and sin and hell were defeated forever, Jesus Christ was raised from the grave in power and in glory. So everything else that happens in this chapter, guess what? It is a proclamation of what Jesus now accomplishes in his life. It says in verse 11 that he'll divide the spoil with the strong. We'll come back to that. In verse 12, that he shall or that he makes intercession for the transgressors. We'll come back to that too. My point here is is to showcase to you that in accordance with what God says in his word, the servant is no longer dead. He is very much alive and very much about doing the work appointed to him by God for our good. So the resurrection is a reality, but again, just like we did with the death of Jesus, what's the point? What is the purpose of the servant's resurrection? Well, I think here in Isaiah 53, it's twofold. First, it is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the great King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what that language in verse 12 is really pointing us toward. That he will that God will divide the servant a portion with the many and divide the spoil with the strong. Commentators wrestle over the the proper translation of that statement, but most agree that what is actually being said here in Isaiah 53 is that the servant of the Lord, because of his work, because of his sacrifice, because of his newness of life, is now being exalted as the King of kings and Lord of lords and being given many for his kingdom. And that the powers and the rulers, authorities of this world, he is taking those as spoil and placing them under his feet. So first here, we see the exaltation of the servant or the exaltation of Jesus as king. But we also see the exaltation of the servant as the great high priest. That's the end of verse 12. The end of this song. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Where is Jesus Christ right now? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what is he doing? 
He is interceding for all those who look to him by faith. But what does that mean in real time? Well, let's think about God's wrath again for a minute, right? How much of it did Jesus take? All of it. For how long? Forever. For who? For all of his people. So how much of it's left again? None. Boy, it'd be great if our hearts actually believed that. But if you're anything like me, as you consider your daily disobedience, you know what we want to do? You know what we convince ourselves is true? That somehow, some way, we can put something back in the bucket. Do you know what Satan, who is actually called in Revelation 12.10, the accuser of the brethren, do you know what he loves to try to convince you is true? That somehow, some way, we can put something back in the bucket. But do you know what actually happens when you and I sin as believers? The Lord Jesus Christ, who again is seated at the right hand of God, he looks at his Father and he says, no, I paid for that. Forever. And the next time we sin, Jesus says, no, I paid for that too. No wrath, Father. It has been poured out on me forever. He is constantly interceding through the merits of his life, his death for us. So where does this resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the servant, lead us, leave us? Well, I hope it leaves us actually in the same two places. Humility. In recognizing that Jesus actually does that work. That he is leading his kingdom forward. And that he is constantly interceding. That he is constantly pleading the merits of his blood and his righteousness before the Father. And here's the great news. He'll never stop doing that work. Such that when you and I appear before a holy, righteous God at the beginning of eternity, Jesus Christ will look at all of his people and say, Father, they are with me forever. It's a done deal. Your love is upon them, even as it's upon me, your servant. It should also leave us in a place of gratitude, right? Recognizing that we have done nothing to deserve the finished work of Jesus, the ongoing work of Jesus. Lastly, it should leave us in a place of confidence. Recognizing that salvation ultimately is not what we do for God. Salvation is a matter of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ because He is gracious and merciful and committed to keeping His promises. As we think about this passage of Scripture, as we think about the work of Jesus... Perhaps as some of us think about not tripping on these as we come back up to the stage in just a moment. Do you remember where we started this morning? That definition of biblical love, what is it? It's an unconditional commitment to promoting the greatest good of another at any and all costs to myself. Let me ask you, what has Jesus Christ done? 
He has been unconditionally committed to us. He promotes not only our greatest good, but our eternal everlasting good. And He does so by giving up His own life, by taking our punishment, by dying in our place. I want to leave you this morning with the third verse of a a rather uh, new hymn. We actually sang it at our hymn sing uh, in November. It's yet not I, but through Christ in me. This is the third verse. Listen carefully to what a beautiful reflection of biblical truth this is. No fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. He was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released, and I sing, I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, rejoice. Even as God drives you to greater humility, to deeper gratitude, to greater confidence in Christ, rejoice. And if you are yet far from Christ, repent. Turn from yourself. Turn from your best efforts. Turn from your sin and look to the servant who died and who lives forevermore for the eternal salvation of God's people. Look and live. Really, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, we rest in who Jesus is. What He has done and what He continues to do. It is good and right for us then, isn't it, to finish with a hymn of exultation. Crown him with many crowns. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful that you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ, that the debt has been paid, that, Lord, we find in his chastisement our peace, in his stripes our healing. God, I pray that you would bring us to a place of humility and gratitude, and joy, and confidence in the standing that we now have before you in Him. We pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.